The Slate Political Gab Fest is sponsored by Stamps.com. Buy and print official U.S. postage using your own computer and printer and save up to 80% compared to a postage meter. Sign up for a no-risk trial and a $110 bonus offer when you visit Stamps.com and use the promo code GABFEST. And by the University of California, committed to creating opportunity through knowledge. Learn more at universityofcalifornia.edu. The University of California, the power of public. The following podcast contains explicit language. Hello and welcome to the Slate Political Gab Fest for May 29th, 2015, the bags and bags and more bags of cash edition. I'm David Plotz of Atlas Obscura. Emily Bazelon of the New York Times Magazine joins from New Haven today. Hello, Emily. Hello, David. And John Dickerson of Face the Nation and Slate joins from where? New York. New York. Hello, John. How are you? I'm fine. What are we T-minus? Is your first show... It's not this weekend, is it? It's not this weekend. It's next weekend. Wow. How are you feeling? Uh, nervous but excited. That is crazy. That's yeah. amazing. What's crazy is, I mean, I've done it before, but when I did it before, there wasn't a next one right after it. I mean, in other right. words, like it's, <laughs> yeah, it's. Right. It's, it's like it's the difference between babysitting and having a child. Yes. Oh, my God. Did um, you just come, did you just pull that right out of the plots file cabinet of analogies or did it or did you uh, author it in the moment uh, in the moment wow. in the moment i just think we should end the show there <laughs> it would probably be a relief <laughs> to all concerned <laughs> not least our listeners can i ask one more question about face the nation do you have so you start whatever in early june does that mean then you you then have to do every show all summer it's like you don't get a break until until the new year or is it do you actually get a little bits of vacation in there? I don't have a break until the foreseeable future. Wow. Oh, no, you right. can't go to Maine. Correct. Ugh. On the other hand, he does have a great new job. On this week's Gab Fest, John Dickerson will be preparing for what it's like to be in the hot seat. We're going to talk about the FIFA bribery scandal and whether sports are intrinsically corrupt and whether they can reform themselves. We will talk about the... Assault on the Patriot Act. Will its worst provisions finally be chopped down by Rand Paul and his allies? And then you probably think our electoral system is biased against cities. Then you're obviously not on the Supreme Court, which is going to hear a case that could give a huge gift to rural voters. Plus, we'll have cocktail chatters. Chatters? Cocktail chatters. We'll have cocktail chatter. I don't think cocktail chatter has a, takes a plural, but I just made a plural. We'll have cocktail chatter and in Slate Plus, the Republican presidential debate circus are the debate rules that Fox and CNN came up with fair. Quick announcement. We have a live show. I bet you guys didn't even know this. We've got a live show coming up in Washington, D.C. on July 29th. That's, I think, a Wednesday night. It's going to be at Sixth and I. And tickets are at the sixthandi.org website. Uh, we'll have a special URL for that, a Slate URL to get tickets. I think there's Slate Plus discounts for that. But there's going to be a live show for the GabFest on July 29th. And I think we'll do a cocktail party before, too, probably. So uh, we look forward to seeing you there. It's going to be really fun. We haven't done a DC live show in a long time. On Wednesday, the international sporting world was struck dumb when U.S. Attorney General Loretta Lynch announced indictments of 14 top figures in international soccer, including higher-ups at FIFA, 
which is soccer's governing body, the accused, some of whom were arrested with the help of Swiss authorities in a very luxe five-star, six-star, seven-star Swiss hotel, were basically accused of giving or taking bribes, mostly involving the awarding of World Cups, particularly the 2010 World Cup that South Africa got and the 2022 World Cup that Qatar won. The 2018 World Cup that Russia got also probably, there was bribery going on there, but that was less, there was less of that in the indictments. Not indicted yet is Sepp Blatter, FIFA's dictator for life. He is expected or was expected to be elected overwhelmingly on Friday to a fourth term as head of FIFA. It's possible as we take that that election will be delayed or more remotely that he would lose to an opposition reform candidate. So Emily, let's start with sort of a legal question. What is the U.S., which is a member of FIFA, but is by no means the the dominant power of FIFA, doing charging a bunch of people who are mostly not Americans for crimes that are basically not committed in the United States involving a sport and an international organization that is not based in the United States. Why are we bringing And it isn't even very popular in the United States. (laughs) Now, 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 now. Let's not have that fight. We can have that fight a little bit later. But why is it legally, why is it legally Loretta Lynch's business that the FIFA sportocrats are incredibly corrupt, which we already knew? Well, I mean, surely this is going to be a fight over jurisdiction. I get to talk now about jurisdiction. And the question will be essentially, are there sufficient ties between this scandal and the United States to justify a United States investigation and indictment? You know, I have a feeling the answer is probably going to be yes. I mean, as long as some of this touches on U.S. teams, U.S. locations, U.S. folks, It's not that hard to get over the jurisdictional bar in a case that's this sprawling, although it does seem really odd for the U.S. to be um, deciding to crack down on this international soccer organization, which, like, I'm sure that there were (laughs) at least a few Americans this morning who woke up and said, FIFA, what's that? Um, It's like the NFL, but even eviler. That would be my... My translation. I mean, many times more corrupt if you believe this indictment. It's just like an amazing set of allegations about just people stealing money and throwing it up in the air. Wait, stealing money and throwing it up in the air? Throwing up money silly. up in the air in order to catch it and steal it. Do you like that better? Oh, my God. I don't know what. It's like soccer itself. I don't understand the rules of this. Stealing you had to kick throwing. the money. You actually had to kick the money. You uh, couldn't right. use your hands. You're to not allowed to use your hands and you can't be offsides. Would somebody run through the allegations, though? So the structure of FIFA is, is designed for corruption. It has 209 member entities, which is more than the U.N. has. So there are lots of entities in FIFA, which are not even U.N. member countries. So I think, for example, Scotland, which is not a member of the U.N., but is a sort of quasi- country is a member of FIFA and it feels a, a team. But it also, so that's Scotland, you know, is a country which has millions or it's an entity that has millions of people. There, then there is Montserrat, which I heard our friends on Hang Up and Listen talking about. Montserrat has 6,000 people. It is a full member of FIFA. And what that means is that for the purpose of all major FIFA decisions, Montserrat gets as much of a vote as, say, Germany or England or Brazil, or any of the great soccer nations of the world. It's Montserrat's single vote counts as much as Germany's vote counts, which is absurd when you think about it. But the FIFA makes a couple of big decisions. One is it makes a decision about who its president is. So all the entities have to vote on who the president is going to be, which means that all these little small countries 
can block vote and ensure the election of someone who will favor their interests, as they have done with Sepp Blatter, the, the Swiss tyrant who rules over FIFA and doles out favors to these little countries. That's one thing. But the more important thing they can do is they vote for who gets the World Cup and, and some other international soccer tournaments, but primarily the World Cup. And what that means is that if you're Qatar or you're South Africa and you are trying to win the World Cup for your country, you need to get a, you know 100 odd votes to win the World Cup. How are you going to get that? Well, one way you can get that is by having the best bid and by appearing to be the, the country where the world wants to stage the World Cup. But another way is to start bribing these soccer officials who are on FIFA to vote for you. And that appears to be the major thing that was happening. It was bribery for the awarding of World Cup and then awarding of some media rights as well and sponsorship rights. And there's one hilarious example in the allegations, we don't know if it's true, where Morocco and South Africa were competing to win the 2010 World Cup. And the Moroccan officials or someone representing Morocco comes off and offers a million dollar bribe to a particular um, delegate or delegation set of delegates. But that million dollar bribe goes nowhere because South Africa has a $10 million bribe instead. So it's not exactly that South Africa is corrupt and Qatar is corrupt. It's that everyone is corrupt and everyone is participating. It's just who's in this better at corruption. their corruption. So how is it possible that Sepp Blatter isn't taking a fall for this? Like, I mean, I've not surprisingly, I've never heard this man's name, which is a great name, by the way, before well, yesterday. Also, can I just say that wasn't this one of the problems? This one, uh, one state, one vote. I mean, we're going to talk about it that later. Yes. In a slightly different context, but wasn't that yeah. one of the problems with the Articles of Confederation? And in in that case, shouldn't like different states have tried to bribe the other states in the early formation of American government? Yeah, it's it's a huge problem. This one state, one vote thing is ridiculous. It's crazy. Also, there are other the other problems with FIFA. Just to get into this a little bit, is it it's one of the least transparent organizations in the world because. It is an international organization. The international organizations, the problem with international organizations is that there's no one they really report to. They report to, you know, nominal governing bodies, but there's no there's no one above them. So FIFA is incorporated, I guess, in Switzerland, and it's governed by the same rules as the Swiss Yodeling Federation. It's, you know, <laughs> and Switzerland is not exactly the most transparent country in the world. No, it has a reputation for being non-transparent. The, the entities are super corrupt. We've seen this at the Olympics, of course, were, were pervaded with corruption and probably still are pervaded with corruption. But wasn't that the reason, the reason Mitt Romney ended up taking over the Salt Lake City Olympics? The International Olympic Committee was accused of taking bribes from the Salt Lake city organizing committee to get the the uh, Olympics in the city. I mean, all of this is a pretty good argument for American jurisdiction, coupled with the fact that some of the main witnesses are American soccer officials. Also, by the way, I should just say in the I think in the Olympic case in 2002, I, it was also the Department of Justice. But the I think in the end they were acquitted, the Salt Lake bidders. But having said that, it, it laid bare what was a basically systemized corruption and nest feathering of, um, you know, the people who were in charge of making the decisions of, of which city got the uh, got the Olympics. I think there's something about this combination of the international organization. So there's no one boss. There's no there's no U.S. government sitting on top of it. There's the world is supposed to be the boss and the world is not a very good boss. Sports, which is basically FIFA gets away with this because it brings so much pleasure to the world. That one of the things that people keep saying is, well, why don't countries boycott the 2018 World Cup in Russia or the 2022 World Cup in Qatar? And no, you would never boycott the World Cup. No, no country would ever do that. It's the World Cup is so popular; it brings so much pleasure. And so FIFA gets has tremendous latitude to do whatever it wants. 
And it also, it's making, mostly it's making a lot of money for everybody. So there's nobody in, because soccer has grown so much in popularity, there's nobody who's really losing a lot of money. They're the countries that don't win a bid. So the U.S., the U.S. got screwed because Qatar got the 2022 World Cup, which we probably deserve to win. So the host bidders would have been happy to win that. But in general, you know, soccer players are getting rich. Soccer is growing in popularity all around the world. So it's, it's, everyone's competing for a much larger, ever-growing pie. And so no one gets too upset that there's a, the friction of corruption is within it. I think that's why this gets to continue for so long. And actually, one thing that's, that I just want to raise, which people who follow soccer also know about, is that this is actually not even not even close to the worst scandal involving the World Cup that's happening right now. There's a much worse scandal, which is not touched on in the indictments, involving the the labor conditions in Qatar. So, oh, so right. Qatar yeah. is... Building a, the stadium, you mean? Yeah, they're yeah. building all these stadiums in this tiny country. They're building stadiums that will get no use except for the World Cup. It's stupid to build them. It's pointless. They're white elephants from the minute they're being built. So Qatar is building all these stadiums and and infrastructure, upgrading infrastructure to prepare for the World Cup. And the estimates are, and they're building it with this foreign labor who work under abominable conditions. And the estimates, which are seem to be very good estimates, are that 4,000 laborers will die to build these World Cup stadiums. 4,000 people will be killed because of well, the working di- conditions in Qatar. It's like That's the pyramids. Just, yeah, it's like the pyramids, except the pyramids will last it for 4,000 years. These are going to last for about 12 years. It's terrible. I was about to ask you whether you thought the corruption was an acceptable cost of all of the glories of soccer, but now that seems completely um, ridiculous question. Bits of corruption are fine. It seems okay. It's not the, the best thing in the world. It doesn't seem tragic. The working conditions are terrible. The fact that they chose Qatar for a World Cup is appalling. It's a terrible place to hold a soccer tournament. I think you could fix almost all the things that are basically wrong with international soccer with a few things where you you would modify this one country, one vote system. You would just make the organizations more transparent. They'd have to file documents under some acceptable set of, of international regulations so everyone could see where the money was going and what was going on with it. And you could have term limits for the, the head of FIFA. We've had one problem is the head, whoever the head is sticks there for years and years and years. That would fix all of it. And you could, but then you could tolerate little bits of corruption here and there. That doesn't, corruption doesn't seem to be the worst thing. Can we do something about the Vuvuzela? That was really, really only a South Africa problem. So I think we'll be okay. Okay. Because I just think when you're, when you're cleaning things up, you might as well make a comprehensive list. I thought some people liked the Vuvuzela. I think the Vuvuzela is only the kind of thing you like when you're the one blowing Wielding into it, it and have control over the. John, just to, to close on this, one of the things that you are a sports fan and you've, you grew up as a huge fan of our dreadful Washington football team, as I did, we have seen in international sports generally like a tremendous amount of general misbehavior. This is financial misbehavior in soccer, but there's generally you know the, the head injuries, the bad labor practices, the monopolistic behaviors, all kinds of of cruddy behavior from owners, from governments which don't regulate these sports very well. Why is it tolerated in sports when it isn't tolerated elsewhere? Well, as you pointed out, pleasure and money. I mean, the money that is associated with the NFL. So the money, not just for the players and the owners, but then it's like all the sporting goods companies and all the beverage and food and beer 
the amazing amount of advertising executives that are involved with the creation of the ads that go to sell all those things. Then there's the whole TV rights massive situation. I mean, when you look at the bidding wars and um, jockeying and contests to get the contract for the games, for the Super Bowl, just everybody's getting paid. And so nobody wants to do anything to threaten something that pays out in such huge gargantuan gobs of money. And also people get great pleasure from the game and the rooting for their home team and all of that. And um, I just, having had a few conversations with people who are obsessed with the business of football, I increasingly in the course of those conversations became convinced that short of actual homicide during regular homicides during games, football is going to go along just fine without ever being slowed by any anything short of homicide. So you have a lot of possibility for um, wrongdoing and the and the sport will do just fine. The GAFAS is sponsored this week by Stamps.com. Getting your mailing and shipping done can seem like a no-win situation. Going to the post office takes up valuable time. Leasing a postage meter is expensive with multi-year commitments and hidden fees. There's usually not a FIFA official there to be bribed or to bribe you. But luckily, there is a better way, which is Stamps.com. With Stamps.com, you can buy and print official U.S. postage for any letter or package right from your desk using your own computer and printer and get special postage discounts you can't even find at the post office. Plus, Stamps.com is more powerful than a postage meter at just a fraction of the cost. You can save up to 80% compared to a postage meter and avoid those time-consuming trips to the post office. Right now, use our promo code GABFEST for our special offer, a no-risk trial, and the $110 bonus offer, which includes the digital scale and up to $55 in free postage. For all the details of the offer and to sign up today, go to stamps.com. Before you do anything else, click on the microphone at the top of the homepage and type in GABFEST. That's stamps.com. Enter GABFEST. Key elements of the Patriot Act, notably the hated Section 215, will expire on June 1st unless Congress acts to extend them. With the Senate in recess until May 31st, like who gives himself a week off for Memorial Day. Who gets that? I don't get that. Sounds good to me. Yeah, I mean, it's great. John McCain went to, to Vietnam. It seems nice. It seems great to take a week off for Memorial Day. Anyway, but there's hardly any time for the Senate to pass a bill. The most likely possibility is Senate passage of a bill that passed the House, which was the USA Freedom Act, which has this hilarious acronym, the acronym, which is United and Strengthening America by Fulfilling Rights and Ending Eavesdropping, Dragnet Collection, and Online Monitoring Act. They acronym that to USA Freedom. That bill overwhelmingly passed the House, and it would end the NSA's bulk collection of the metadata of all of our telephone calls that uh, it has justified under Section 215. But it failed to beat a Senate filibuster, got only 57 votes on the first uh, Senate consideration of it, despite having 100 percent support from Democrats on it. So, John, what is happening? Is the Senate going to get to a bill that's going to continue the these elements of the Patriot Act? They're clocking in at four o'clock on Sunday, which means the basically the only way they could pass something without sunsetting of the Patriot Act would be if they passed the House bill and just didn't touch it. And so for that to happen, Mitch McConnell would have to basically climb down from his position, which was to support a bill put forward by Republican Senator Richard Burr. And a few other senators would have to climb down, too. Some of those senators would be, and we can talk about this in a minute, the politics of this, but some of those 
senators would be folks who are up in 2016. And I'm not sure whether that will matter at all, whether that'll make things easier or harder, because I'm not quite sure how the politics of this play out. But anyway, that would be the only way to have it happen that fast, which is to say from four o'clock, you know, after four o'clock on Sunday. And uh, some of what I've read has suggested that even if you did that, just procedurally, it would take a little time so that there would be a a small period where the Patriot Act in its old form will have uh, disappeared. But if that doesn't happen and the Senate still continues, Senate leaders still continue to try and find an alternative, then the filibusters might continue and you might have a real breakdown uh, where you would have all the provisions of the Patriot Act, uh, not just 215, but everything else uh, having to do with what are the other big ones, Emily? Roving wiretaps, um, yep. some other stuff that people, the lone wolf, the lone, the lone wolf, wolf provision. So I'm not sure that we know what's going to happen yet. Emily, why do you think there this skepticism about Section 215 has emerged and been actually been successful? Because Section 215 sucks and has been interpreted in a way that sucks much more by the FISA court, the Foreign Intelligence Surveillance Court, that has allowed the NSA to basically, you know, collect all this data at will. And I think because of Snowden, I think Snowden coming forward really changed the conversation in the country and made it seem not like a fringe concern to be worried about mass surveillance and the, you know, increasingly sweeping government powers we see in this arena. So your point about it, I think this is important, which people may have forgotten, the the fact that this kind of grew out of a Patriot Act happens in the wake of 9-11, then this is a kind of like... Those trees that grow the big um, nodule around like an imperfection. I mean, this is an outgrowth that comes yes. that get, gets kind of found in the Patriot Act and then kind of created out of it. So explain that a little bit more. So, I mean, I think that's an important part of it. Isn't it the case? It's one of these things where the government started doing these things, gathering right. the data and then found its justification many years later in the Patriot Act. Correct. Exactly. That's the fact. And also then came to the FISA court. Right. So, you know, this is the big Obama innovation or at least the big factor Obama cites for why what his administration is doing. okay, that is is okay because they've been running everything by the FISA court. But the sort of gargantuan growth that John was talking about. So Section 215 talks about broadening surveillance powers to include not just a foreign power, but also terrorist groups, even if they're unaffiliated with any nation, and not just business records, but also, quote, any tangible things, and they have to have relevance to an investigation. Okay, well, relevance to an investigation is still kind of a limiting factor, except that the NSA argued that it could basically be relevant to any possible it doesn't have to be a pre-existing um, investigation. It could just be any possible conspiracy out there. And that's where we get to this idea that you can essentially collect all the metadata and have all of it, and the government can then go search around in it. And the government's justification is, okay, we're just holding on to it. We're only going to look if we have an actual investigation. But that's the kind of, you know, just trust us setup that has led to abuses in other contexts in the past. And so there's this 
really excellent opinion, um, finding that the government just went too far as a matter of statutory interpretation by Judge Gerald Lynch in New York and other members of the Second Circuit. And they're saying, like, this is just too much. And I think that interpretation, because it's carefully done and because it's coming from this is the first appeals court to take this stand, the timing of it was really good for um, preventing just a kind of wholesale reaffirmation of this law rather than trying to dial it back. But if the if the court has said it's their statutory interpretation is wrong, why does it matter if Section 215 is continued or not? Because they, they're not justified even under the law as it exists. Well, that's just the Second Circuit. It's not a Supreme Court ruling. It, you know, has limited application. And essentially what this Lynch opinion says, it's sort of a dare to the government. It's, you know, when, when the court says the NSA and the FISA court statutory interpretation is wrong. They're saying to Congress, like, hey, if you meant to pass this in an incredibly broad way, go ahead and pass it again. If you didn't, well, you know, let's like back up to what it looks like you actually meant when you wrote these words. Emily, can I ask you a question about um, the way in which Congress moves or doesn't move on issues that courts tell it to go back and fix? So when I was thinking and looking at what James Sensenbrenner, the original author of the Patriot Act, has done in uh, concert with other members to try and fix the flaws in the Patriot Act and fix the creation of authority on 215, they seem to be doing what the Supreme Court asked Congress to do on the Voting Rights Act, right? Uh, Mm -hmm. Sort of saying this wasn't, you know, this is improperly written, can't be used in its current form, so go back and fix it. And the two rates of speed seem to be pretty different in those two areas. Yes or no? Yo, absolutely. But I also think it's a little bit of a misnomer to say the Supreme Court said to Congress, like, you got this wrong, go fix it. That opinion by John Roberts for the conservative majority is more like, hey, you know what? We're really uh, supposedly sorry, but really not that the Voting Rights Act is out of date. Now, maybe it's, you know, you could fix it if (laughs) you could get your act together. And look, this is a dynamic between the judiciary and the executive and Congress, which in some ways is perfectly proper. Courts are supposed to make sure that laws get read in the way they were written. Otherwise, you know, you give government agencies or, um, yeah, government agencies, the president, too much power. On the other hand, sometimes it's like very much a sort of um, false promise to imagine that Congress is going to get its act together. I mean, we have the same problem with the Obamacare case that's before the Supreme Court this term. Congress could solve that problem, too. And the question is, like, well, will it? And I guess what's unusual about this Patriot Act, USA Freedom Act situation is Congress actually seems to be taking that responsibility really seriously. And there's a bipartisan effort to change the law. Emily, one thing that I don't think is getting fixed, and correct me if I'm wrong, but in in the USA Freedom Law, it doesn't correct the fact that we're now developing this huge body of secret law, that the FISA court is making lots of decisions. These decisions are basically kept in secret. The legal justifications are, are classified. And we have a whole world of law, which is inaccessible to us, where the people who are being investigated don't know about it, where the companies that have been asked to participate are not allowed to talk about it, and where even the the legal reasoning of it is not under discussion. That seems to me something that if I were a, a judge or a legal scholar, I would desperately want to correct. Well, and this is another thing that we got from the Snowden document dump was some, some FISA court opinions. I can't remember, I'm sorry, whether it's Um, Rand Paul or Ron Wyden or some other version of a bill out there. But there is definitely an effort to try to make public the FISA court opinions as 
the default for those opinions. And I completely agree with you that that's the way the law should move, whether Congress will, in the end, have the sort of guts to include that. I don't know. Can I ask you a question about a number that intrigued me, but I, I'm not sure in what way that it intrigued me, and so I'm looking for um, for an answer. Pew did a study on um, opinions about surveillance in the wake of Snowden, and it said that 34% of the people who un, who knew about the program, which which means basically 30% of adults, have taken at least one step to hide or shield their information from the government. Does that strike you as a big number or a little number? I think it strikes me as a pretty big number. Yeah, me too. Yeah. Don't you wonder if people really did that or just wish they sure, had? Or just told pollsters, <laughs> right. One of the things about this issue that I don't know the answer to, is it one of those issues where, because the country's not outraged about this. I mean, the numbers are, there's a majority who would who don't want the government to investigate American citizens. But it's it may very well be one of those issues where, those who are passionate about it are quite passionate and other people like think it's not a great idea but aren't going to go march about it but that's why the, so that's why the 34% interested me or the 30% I should say interested me because those are people who are like taking this on board i mean they think it's serious enough the encroachment on civil liberties is serious enough perhaps to to take measures in their own lives that's if we're to believe people's uh, answers when they talk to pollsters can I say one more thing, which is that the whole, another whole reason we're obviously having this conversation is that there was a sunset provision in the original Patriot Act. It's a law that was written with an end date. And I wish, wish, wish we had more of these because it's so important to have these renewed debates. Agreed. John, last question on this. What is the Rand Paul's stand on this, which is even much stronger than the people who want to reform the Patriot Act? What is it going to do for him politically and electorally? What's happening to Rand Paul at the moment is that he is the everybody in the Republican race right now is attacking him. So Chris Christie is saying that Rand Paul is siding with Edward Snowden and Bobby Jindal took a swipe at him. Part of this is about the facts of the case. Part of it is using Rand Paul as a way to just say over and over again what every other Republican candidate other than Rand Paul wants to say and looks for opportunities to say in front of Republican voters, which is I will be the strongest, most robust national security president that you could elect. So Rand Paul has a filibuster or a quasi not really a filibuster on the floor of the Senate to take advantage of this conversation. And all of his Republican opponents are taking their own kind of advantage of it by beating up on him. It's interesting because you could, given the splintering of the Republican field, there are, you know, 18 candidates perhaps, which means winning in any one of these contests could be done with a pretty small group. You can imagine a way in which this helps everybody so that Rand Paul's real super supporters love that he's the champion on this and love that he's being attacked. And the, and the attacks have gotten pretty over, over the top from Chris Christie. Mike Lee, the senator from Utah, who's with Rand Paul on these NSA issues, called it political pornography, the way in which Christie was using 9-11 and, and sort of scaring people about what uh, these modifications in the Patriot Act would ultimately lead to. So Rand Paul's people like that he's being attacked for this because they like that he's standing up for these issues. And the, those who hate Rand Paul will think better of the candidates who are attacking him. And it may it may be a case in which it's basically win-win for both sides from a pure political standpoint. The GabFest is brought to you by the University of California, committed to creating opportunity through knowledge. 
42% of UC undergraduates, more than 78,000 students, will be among the first in their families to earn a college degree. Learn more at the universityofcalifornia.edu. The University of California, the power of public. Now for today's featured research. Whether you prefer red, white, or chilled rosé, what do you prefer? I think I'm white, possibly chilled rosé. You, Emily? Chilled rosé? No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> I'll go with white as well. Although, it depends on the season. I like red in the winter. Uh, I won't ask John. All. He just checks all the boxes. Yes, volume. John is red, white, and a chilled rosé. The grapes behind the wines we love are beginning to feel the heat from climate change. Weather is a critical factor in grape growing. And as the climate becomes more uncertain, it poses an immense challenge for vintners and the $30 billion global wine industry as a whole. Andrew Walker, professor in the Department of Viticulture and Enology at the University of California at Davis, is developing new wine grapes that are more adaptable by combining classical breeding techniques with molecular genetics. So say goodbye to that glass of Chardonnay or Sauvignon Blanc with dinner and say hello to a brand new hybrid. Science is about to disrupt how grapes are grown and how wine is made. Cheers. To read the story and uncover more groundbreaking innovations by the University of California, visit slate.com slash breakthroughs. The news for me in that is that there's a Department of Viticulture and Enology. I guess you need that in California. I wonder if there are any places which have departments of beer. That would be an interesting department. Maybe like the city of Milwaukee. Yeah, like does the University of Wisconsin Milwaukee have a beer department? That's a good question. Or St. Louis. Washington, what would it be St. called? Louis. Brewing? Department of Brewing? Department of Mead? Hopology? We'll find out. The Supreme Court agreed to hear a case this week involving the rights of voters, specifically the imbalance between rural and urban voters. At last, thank goodness, the Supreme Court is going to redress the terrible 226-year-old wrong that has given rural voters from small, underpopulated states excessive power in the legislature and electoral college. Oh, but they're not, of course. The conservative Supreme Court is doing the reverse. They are taking a case that if they decide, as, as I'm sure conservatives hope they decide, that would give more power to rural conservative voters. So, Emily, what is the issue here? So this is such a big deal, and it's going to sound so technical, but it's so important. So in 1964, the Supreme Court said one person, one vote. What that meant was that every district, like congressional districts, state representative districts, has to be drawn so that they're an equal number of and then the question is, equal number of what? Is it people? Is it eligible voters? Is it actual voters? And it turns out it makes a really big difference in areas in which there are a large number of people who don't vote, i.e. lots of poor people or, in particular, lots of undocumented or non-citizen immigrants. And so this case sounds like a technical thing. Do we care about counting voters? Do we care about counting people? You could make an argument each way, right? You could say, like, it's the representative's responsibility to represent every person, whether he or she can vote. Or you can say, like, well, no, the voter is really the key driver of democracy. But Outside of the theoretical realm, the very practical impact of this case would be that you would change districting within states and regions in such a way that you'd move the power to the rural areas, as you said. In other words, the Republican areas. And so essentially, if the court tells states you have to be counting actual voters or perhaps eligible voters as opposed to people, then that's the um, impact that the ruling would have. Right. So the, so the things that depress the number of from total population is children, so children don't vote, disenfranchised felons who are not eligible, immigrants. Those are the main ones, right? 
Yeah. Right, right. And to, about the felons, there's an... <laughs> One of the reasons I have thought about this issue in the past is that there's this kind of weird counter effect um, based on state prison population. So in most states, many states, prisons are in rural areas. And if you count people and the people include the prisoners, then you boost the power of the representatives from the rural areas because you're counting your prisoners as living, you know, in who knows where, as opposed to in New York City. So that's been another kind of issue for a long time. Um, but here we have essentially like the inverse, where the shift in power that would take place if we change this rule away from people would be the, to the benefit of Republican politicians. Could you fix this through, I mean, just registering more humans? Well, you can't well, register you children can't register or immigrants who don't have papers. Right. You could change the disenfranchised felon law, but laws, but I, it, it's hard to imagine that that is going to be what happens in the states that are most affected. Just to give some, put some numbers on this, I don't have, I, I'm going to forget this slightly, but I think that in the plaintiffs in this case who are rural voters, in one case a rural Republican official, saying that she is in an area where her legislator represents 570,000 voters Whereas in the city, the urban delegate is representing only 370,000. So right, but they, have, they represent equal numbers of people. Even though they're equal numbers of people in the district. Right. So there's, you can see that's a real imbalance. The question is, do we care? So the different ways you could measure it. So you could measure it by total population. You could measure by voting age population. So it would, wouldn't even count. It wouldn't even distinguish immigrants and non-immigrants. It would say anyone from 18 and above. You could make that. Right. The, and that wouldn't make measure. a huge difference. That wouldn't? No, because then you're just talking about age as opposed to immigrant status and um, these other factors that we were talking about. Like, the And then the third way would felons. be to make it by eligible voters, the number of people who actually, I guess, registered to vote, which is not something the census actually measures right now, right? Right. Well, that's a whole other problem is none of these alternative measures are, are taken in or we don't have good data about anything other than the number of people. And therefore, wouldn't you be if you changed it, would you be essentially mandating a cost on the state's? I mean, potentially, you know, I mean, one of the other things I love about this case is that it's a federalism problem. Sue Evanwell, the Republican voter you referred to, is suing Texas. It's Governor Abbott who yeah. is the defendant in this case. And what the states are arguing is they should get to decide themselves. The Supreme Court never said whether it was people or voters or eligible voters, and the states can figure this out on their own. And so if the Supreme Court steps in based on this conservative challenge brought by the same public interest group that brought us the challenge to the Voting Rights Act and a recent affirmative action case out of UT Austin, if the court sides with the conservative challengers, they're going to be assuming this kind of national rule and a lot of power for the courts over the states. In other words, this is the kind of quintessential act of judicial activism that conservatives used to complain about in the past. But now they've gotten really, really good at this same strategy. So one hears complaints less about it. There are three outcomes here, it seems to me. Outcome number one is the Supreme Court rules in favor of this plaintiff and mandates that they use another a standard of eligible voter, let's say. Or voters. Or voters. That's number one. Number two is the Supreme Court rules against this plaintiff and says they use a standard of total population and imposes a different standard, which is total population. And the third is the Supreme Court says it's up to the states. Right. It's whatever. It's status quo. And then the states themselves will presumably go, some of the states, I, what I don't understand is why Texas hasn't changed to a voter or eligible voter standard. They're allowed to right now. 
Yes, good question. One reason is just inertia. Another reason is that they don't have good data. But you're certainly right that simply by airing this issue, the plaintiffs um, and the group behind them have potentially created momentum for changes in states like Texas. And that's another kind of genius aspect of this lawsuit. Have you ever heard of this issue, John, before this lawsuit? Not in this context. Not in the... I mean, there are there's obviously lots of conversations about the disproportionate representation and disproportionate power of in the Senate of states with low populations that nevertheless still get one, you know, still get two senators, but not in this in the one person, one vote argument. Just one question to you, Emily, about the Supreme Court. What would be the argument for not letting the states figure their own business out? So the, the Supreme Court has to come up with a standard. But what's the argument that the Supreme Court would embrace that says the Supreme Court has the responsibility to come up with a standard instead of the individual states? I mean, it seems so trumped up to me, but I guess you would argue that voters are the only people that matter and that Sue Evanwell is being done a terrible disservice because, as David said, she is one of whatever it was, 500,000 and change voters and someone next door in the district with only 300,000 and change voters gets a much better deal. And that's not fair to certain voters. And the principle of representation is a goes beyond individual boundaries of states. And therefore, it's not something in which a locality has can have a particular interest different than another, right? Because you're citizens of a country and not, yeah. Right. But I mean, let's just go back to the historical irony here. I mean, it's almost as if we were having some weird deja vu about the three-fifths clause that counted slaves as three-fifths of people, right? I mean, once you start saying that voters count and the rest of the people don't count, you're creating whatever division you're using. If you don't use person, you're saying that there are some people whose citizenship matters more than others. And that, I just, I mean, that seems breathtaking to me. So could you, if you were fashioning an argument, could you use the three-fifths clause to argue standing? In other words, to argue that the Supreme Court has the power to make these kinds of determinations, even though the three-fifths clause was overturned? I don't think so. I don't think any plaintiff would be so crazy. It just would be, would be <laughs> very... right, like a really <laughs> stupid way to argue your case. But I'm just saying, if you're trying to establish that they had the power to ru- rule on these matters and that it wasn't something to be left to the states... Maybe some super right-wing group will write that amicus brief, but I, I think what's much more likely is we'll see the briefs on the other side making the point I just made. Like, oh, come on, you don't really want to take us back to that time. But is there a way to, to – I think this wouldn't work with disenfranchised felons, but certainly if you count immigrants and definitely if you count undocumented immigrants to say they actually don't have as many rights. They they are more like a three-fifths case. And that that's an intellectually coherent argument to make that – that we shouldn't count them the same way we count citizens. That seems but like couldn't, a... Why? Why is that intellectually coherent? I mean, why isn't the answer to that, like, every politician knows that undocumented immigrants Well, you wouldn't count... Would you count tourists? No, because tourists aren't residents. We never use tourists as a measure of... Well, but... We have undocum- voting based undocumented on immigrants. Undocumented immigrants are kind of like tourists who stayed too long. No, they are not. They live in a place. That seems ridiculous to me. I mean, look, what I was going to say before is every politician knows that these people have less political power, and that probably means they're all, their needs are already getting overlooked. It's right, not like politicians... But, but they shouldn't be taking their needs into account because presumably they're there illegally. Well, that doesn't mean we don't have any responsibility to them whatsoever. I mean, are you guys now going to start arguing that like these people, should, the children shouldn't be in school? 
it's a separate question about whether they should be in school or whether they should be in, you know, whether they're eligible for benefits or if they show up at the hospital, whether they should be treated. Those right. are different questions. This is a question of for the purposes of po- political power in the United States, is it unreasonable to say that representation in rep- when we come to think about representation, that immigrants shouldn't be taken into account or undocumented immigrants shouldn't be taken into account because they definitionally are not able to participate in the process and we they're not here they were not here in any justified way, and therefore we should we shouldn't privilege their their presence here by. I mean, by who wants to live in that process. universe where we're making that kind of distinction? But also, isn't the point that this is about making a case that will win in court? I mean, so in other words, could anybody argue persuasively to try to change the mind of a justice that there needs to be representation that encompasses undocumented workers? I mean, as a, separate and apart from, do you want to live in that kind of country? Just is that a? It's the point I was just asking about. Yes, I mean, is it, obviously, it's an argument. I mean, they you convinced. Could... Four, yeah, four justices agreed to hear this case, and Justice Thomas has been bringing this issue up for years. He's been saying, "Look, we never resolved this. We really should get around to this for a very long time." Um, but no, but I mean, to yeah. win a majority. I mean, is it a to win a majority? It's. I mean, look, what this case to me is the genius of John Roberts because what John Roberts, in my view, and I have some evidence for this but I can't make a definitive case, I think what he cares about most is the political process. The Voting Rights Act, overturning that. This case is another great example. There is a case the Supreme Court heard earlier this year about whether states can have independent commissions do their districting. I bet you that's one is not going to come out um, in favor of independent districting if John Roberts has anything to do with it. And so if you put these dots together, what you can see here is a real effort by conservatives. If I'm right, and in fact, you know, Roberts votes on the side of the plaintiffs in this case and musters a five justice majority, you can see the conservatives really taking care to consolidate Republican power across the country. And I mean, Citizens United, how could I have left that out? That's their other like magnum opus in this area. All right, let's leave it there. Unless, Emily, you want to close with a prediction about where the case is going to go. No, I mean, I think it's going to be super interesting to watch. And I guess now that I've heard you guys try to make the sort of intellectually respectable argument for not for one person, one vote, not actually meaning one person. I'm super interested to watch the briefs come in and all of the discussion and to try to make it seem, you know, kind of like, OK, and mainstream to imagine the country divided up in this way. I'm going to bet that the Supreme Court leaves it in the hands of states and then that we see a bunch of states suddenly realize oh we can we can change how we do this and and yeah that does that's like anthony kennedy answer too right because he's the most committed federalist um states rights person on the court right now and he's the swing vote so good prediction slate is part of the panoply network let us hear from one of our sister or maybe brother podcasts sibling podcast let's hear from a sibling podcast I'm Sam Zabel, host of Adulthood Made Easy, and the next couple months will be a guide to grads dedicated to the class of 2015. We'll be talking about all of the things you're worried about right now. How to stay in touch with college friends, what a 9-to-5 job looks like, and how to explore and get comfortable in a new city. You can subscribe to Adulthood Made Easy and the rest of the Real Simple podcasts at iTunes.com slash All right, let's go to cocktail chatter. When you are pondering the fate of one person, one vote, or you're dropping a bribe off with your local FIFA official this weekend, John Dickerson, what are you going to be chattering about? 
Well, it's actually basically what we were just talking about. <laughs> that is not a good side, John Dixon. No, I know. Well, it, so I was um, reading Brain Pickings, as I often do, one of my favorite websites. Um, plus one for that. What's that? Plus one and plus one yeah. in your brain picking. It's, um, it's like a cot key is for you, David. Anyway, I just like sometimes I find myself reading it and then I've got like nine tabs open and they're all tabs from whatever I was just reading. But the most recent one is an entry about um, Blaise Pascal and the art of persuasion. And we've talked about this a lot. We were just talking about it, you know, an argument that you make because it's the world the world you want to live in or an argument you make because you're trying to convince somebody of something. And and that was uh, also something we talked about with respect to vaccines. How do you convince somebody who's on the opposite side of you to change their mind? So we all know now about studies that have been done that essentially when people are hit with clear facts that refute their point of view, often the response is not, oh, I was wrong <laughs> and let me change my mind, but to cling more fervently to the thing that has presumably just been completely dismantled by the fact. And so in this entry and in this book by Blaise Pascal in 16, I guess, I don't know, sometime in the 17th century, mid 17th century, he talks about how to persuade. And he writes, when we wish to correct the, with advantage and to show another that he errs, we must notice from what side he views the matter. People are generally better persuaded by the reasons which they have themselves discovered than by those which have come into the minds of others. In other words, you must help people and know where they're coming from in order to persuade them rather than bolting onto them your own views, even if your views are you know, objectively right. Eloquence, he writes, persuades by sweetness, not by authority. Eloquence is the art of saying things in such a way that those to whom we speak may listen to them without pain and with pleasure, that they feel themselves interested so that self-love leads them more willingly to reflect upon it. This is the model for discourse in our modern age, except that it's impossible and very hard to uh, pull off. But it's just wonderful to read and think about how both to persuade others and to make arguments in, the, in public life, but then also about um, how bound we are to our own ideas and how susceptible we are to having our own minds changed. All right. Deep. It was deep. <laughs> there, was no, there was no possum in that one. Yeah. No, but you could read this while eat, dining on a dinner of possum. And uh, I guess the book in which it, the, all of this wisdom is found is Pense, I guess, P-E-N-S-E-E-S. With an accent goo over the first Pense. e, say what? Pense. Pense. What did I say? Pense. No, pense. No, terrible. Pense. Pense. Sorry. Quite right, you are. Uh, bon, Emily, Bazalon. I am going to very dangerously chatter about something I haven't actually read. On five thirty-eight, there was a, a post this week about how to rank sports dynasties that snubbed the nineteen sixties Celtics. My son, Simon, read this post, decided that the data analytics behind it had some fentanyl flaw in it related to something called the ELO factor. God knows what that is. Anyway, apparently, if you are interested in sports dynasties, this is really interesting and grist for the mill. And um, if anyone out there works for 538, Simon wrote you guys an email with his critique and would love, love, love to get a response. 
So you're log rolling for your son's statistical analysis? I'm log rolling for my son and also offering up a great 538 post about sports dynasties that just happens to get the formula wrong in a way that penalizes the apparently greatest dynasty ever called Bill Russell Celtics. Huh. All right. I am chattering about something I've actually chattered about before, but I have now experienced. So last weekend, Hannah and I, my wife and I, went to something called the League of Kitchens, which is probably the greatest thing that's ever been created in the world. I, I can't, if you are in New York and you don't do this, you're an idiot. League of Kitchens is a cooking class, but it's a cooking class that you take in the home of somebody, and that somebody is an, is some immigrant to the United States who has who is a great cook in her native culture and has made it to the United States and will tell you about her life and share her life with you and as you learn about her culture through its food. And so we had a meal with uh, Noida, who's a, an Afghan refugee who made it to the U.S. through just an extraordinary series of circumstances that made you say, God bless America, we're the greatest country on earth. And we spent five hours in, in her apartment cooking with her, learning about how to make certain kinds of Afghan food. Like the intimacy of it, the connection you make with the human being, the connection you make with the other people in the class, the, the way you get to learn home cooking of a culture, the hands-onness of it, and really just the deep human connection you can make with somebody who has, who's come to the United States as, and made a, made a life for herself is out of this world. League of Kitchens, if you don't do it, you know, get it for your mom. Get it for your your friend who loves to cook. It's it's so so great. You have to be in New York. It sounds like right now. And right now, you have to be in New York. I I really hope that it gets franchised elsewhere in the country because it's such a tremendously good idea. It is quite different than any other cooking class I've ever done, and so miles better. Our intern is Tark Barrett. Our producer is Mike Volo. Our managing producer is Joel Meyer. Andy Bowers is the executive producer of Slate Podcasts. The GabFest is part of the Panoply Network. Check out our entire roster of podcasts at iTunes.com slash Panoply. Our show page is Slate.com slash GabFest. Our Facebook page is Facebook.com slash GabFest. And our Twitter feed is at SlateGabFest. Please subscribe to the GabFest on iTunes and leave a comment and rating while you're there. If you like us, commenting and rating really do help us. For Emily Bazelon and John Dickerson, I'm David Plotz. We'll talk to you next week and come to our live show in July in D.C. Mm-hmm.